Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts 27. And also, while you're at it, bookmark Acts 2. We're going to begin in Acts 27. I'm really excited about this chapter. Uh, We're going to see something different today. Paul has been in Caesarea for just over two years. He's testified before the Roman governors Felix and Festus, as well as the Jewish king Agrippa. And now, finally, he is on the move. And things are, are about to get pretty dramatic. I think you could describe this as a out-of-the-frying-pan-and-into-the-fire type situation. He's escaped the Jews who wanted to assassinate him, only to find himself caught in the midst of a terrible storm in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And in my mind, I've got images of the opening scenes of the 1960s movie, Swiss Family Robinson. It begins with ominous music, dark skies, sheets of rain, howling wind, white-capped waves, a dark ship with torn sails taking on water, being pushed by the wind, a ship that keeps getting closer and closer to jagged rocks until it finally smashes onto those rocks and the family has to strap together a life or a raft out of scraps of wood to get to shore. We're going to see something very similar in today's text. And as soon as I saw Acts 27 on my preaching schedule, I knew exactly how I wanted to approach this passage. My mind immediately went back to 2012 to a class that Dr. Ligon Duncan was teaching at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson. In this class, Dr. Duncan was lecturing on the biblical doctrine of predestination and how... God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Dr. Duncan did not argue for a a weak, uh, you know, watered down version of predestination. The type, well, God just looked down the corridor of time, and saw what you would do and responded responded accordingly. No, Dr. Duncan was arguing for the cask strength, biblical doctrine of predestination. That the ultimate destination of all things have been predetermined by God before the foundation of the world. Now, some of you are uncomfortable. Some of you are thinking, "Uh uh-oh, John is finally taking the mask off and showing us his frozen, chosen face. I should have listened to the warnings of my Baptist relatives. They, They warned me about those Presbyterians. I want you to take a deep breath. Everything's going to be okay. In this lecture on predestination, Dr. Duncan came to some common objections to the doctrine. One of them being predestination 
is inconsistent with human freedom. It undermines our moral responsibility. It undermines the choices we make. Maybe you've heard something similar. That the Presbyterians and the Reformed can't be right on predestination because it undercuts human freedom. Do you know how Dr. Duncan responded to that objection? By showing instances in Scripture where predestination and human freedom are both found in the same passage. Instances in Scripture that clearly show that God's sovereign predestination is compatible with human responsibility. And the Bible will do this and make no apologies for it. My favorite example that Dr. Duncan cited was from 1 Kings 22. This is uh, the story that begins with King Ahab wanting to go to battle and ends with King Ahab dying in battle. And I don't have time, but if you're interested, just for fun, read 1 Kings 22. And when you read it, ask these two questions. Number one, is God sovereign? And number two... Is man responsible for his actions? And you know what you'll find? 1 Kings 22 will say yes and yes. God is sovereign. Mankind is responsible. Both are true. They are not at odds with each other. You will see that in 1 Kings 22. Well, that was the Old Testament example Dr. Duncan gave. And then he went on to a lengthy, no less dramatic example from the New Testament. And it's the passage that you have open before you today, Acts 27. It's the Apostle Paul's experience in this storm at sea and the shipwreck that follows. And it is a lengthy text, but as we read it, keep in mind these two questions. Is God sovereign? And is man responsible for his actions? Lord willing, we can leave, we can all leave this place a little less scared of predestination. Hopefully, you can leave comforted by the sovereignty of God and also motivated knowing that your decisions really do matter. We're going to see that in just a moment, but first let's ask the Lord to bless this reading and preaching of his word. Father, we remember that all scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we remember that just as this ship we're about to read about, just as it was carried along by the wind, men were carried along as your spirit They were carried along by your Spirit as they wrote these very words. So help us to trust in them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read the entirety of Acts chapter 27 today. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, 
a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. (coughs) Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to uh, Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing, uh, sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently... Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island named Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sritis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved, was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And I said, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. 
So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he'd said these things, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough and lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So I'm just going to follow the superscripts that are in this chapter. You know, there are three divisions. Paul setting sail for Rome, the storm at sea, and then the shipwreck. That's how I'm going to divide this text. And we'll begin with Paul's setting sail. This journey begins with him being placed in the care of a centurion named Julius. This was the officer whose job it was to ensure that Paul made his court date and didn't wander off somewhere else. And early on, we see the hand of God at work, giving Paul favor in the eyes of the centurion. In verse 3, we're told, Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. He didn't have to do this. I mean, and maybe that doesn't seem like much until... You see what happens when the ship crashes. I mean, what was the plan of the soldiers that we just read? Once the ship crashed, kill the prisoners so that none could swim away and escape. For these soldiers, a dead prisoner was better than an escaped prisoner. But what happens? Julius 
the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And again, Julius did not owe Paul anything. He is not some bleeding heart. He's not a pacifist. He's not a hippie. He's a centurion of the Roman legion. Harsh treatment of prisoners normally would not bother him at all. But for some reason, Paul found favor in his eyes. Why was that? Well, you could also ask, why did Joseph find favor in the eyes of his Egyptian master? Why did Esther win favor in the eyes of all who saw her? Why did Daniel win favor in the eyes of the chief servants of the king of Babylon? Or even the Lord Jesus in his youth. We're told he increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. Why was that? Because the maker of heaven and earth was working to accomplish his perfect, predetermined plan. In all those cases, the hand of God was at work. And here's a prayer request I see in this text. It might be a prayer request that you may not have ever prayed. Maybe you have. Lord, give me favor in the eyes of my boss. Give me favor in the eyes of my principal, my supervisor, my board, whoever it is. Have you ever thought to pray, Lord, give me favor in their eyes? Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that you compromise your Christian faith. Paul didn't. Daniel didn't. None of those people I named did. But God worked. He worked in unbelievers that his plan might be accomplished. We can pray this. Lord, give me favor in their eyes. And don't do it just so that my life would be easier. Do it so that your will may be done And your plan go forward. I thought that was an interesting application. But we get back to Paul's journey. And I just want to give you a couple details before we get to the storm. This journey begins on a smaller boat. One that would hug the coast. He's going to first go north and then west along the coast of modern day Turkey. Luke tells us that he sailed under the lee of Cyprus. And we'll see this again. Under the lee. Under the lee simply means that you're, you're sailing, well, you're sailing in a way where you have a piece of land blocking the wind. You're given some uh, relief. Then in verse 6, there's a change of ships. Paul is transferred from this smaller ship to a much larger ship that was built for open sea travel. A ship that could easily accommodate 276 people. It was a ship of Alexandria, Egypt, which was sailing for Italy. I read someone who described it as a large Egyptian grain barge. I don't know if that helps at all picturing it in your mind. But remember, there are no gas engines. There are no diesel engines. If you didn't have... uh, 
slaves or crewmen who were rowing this ship, you were entirely at the mercy of the wind. And in God's providence, the winds forced this ship south to the island of Crete. And they pass a port called Fair Havens. Now, obviously, this town's name was not an accurate depiction of it. Maybe you've seen or known a town like that. Where the name of the town is not an accurate description of the town, well, so it was with Fair Havens. It was becoming late in the year, which means weather would go from bad to worse, and they didn't want to weather, they didn't want to spend the winter in Fair Havens. They wanted to push on a little further to, to a better town, the port town of Phoenix. Now, I looked this up on Google Maps. The names are not the same, but I've, I've got the locations in a big atlas. And I looked this up on the island of Crete. And these two aren't far apart. If you were to drive this on land, it would be 72 miles. So, I mean, they aren't, they aren't trying to get from one side of Texas to the other. I mean, it's in a straight line. It's less than 72 miles And they're just trying to hold out for this next town that had the nicer hotel. But they never make it. And here's where we get to the second division of the text, which is the storm at sea. They're sailing along. They're on the south side of the island of Crete, trying to hold out for the nicer town, the nicer rest stop. Like, we all understand this. And out of nowhere, they're caught in a storm. Verse 14, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. We gave way and were driven along. And listen to these details. Verse 18, we were violently storm tossed. And the next day began to jettison the cargo. All their profits, their livelihood, everything that that they were going to sell at market in Italy. Gone. Verse 19. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. The vital ropes and beams and poles and pulleys, all those things that would have been used in the steering and controlling of the ship. Gone. Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Their profits and livelihood, gone. Their vital equipment for the ship, gone. Now the very signs in the sky that told them their direction, the sun and the stars, gone. They have no idea where they're going. Pretty much all they know for certain is that they aren't going to be alive much longer. And I can't even imagine. I think the closest thing I've known is getting caught in a storm in a pontoon boat on Grenada Lake. I've got this image in my mind of a dark sky and sheets of rain and howling wind and huge billows. Billows that could cover this church building. And the ship completely aimless, bobbing up and down. And I'm sure that every time the ship rode down the backside of a swell, the sailors all wondered 
if they would come back up again. Or if they would be swallowed by the next wave and everyone drowned. And this is when Paul stands up. And you got to love this. He begins in verse 21 with, I told you so. I told you it would be dangerous to continue sailing this late in the year. I told you it would cost you, but you didn't listen. And then he keeps speaking. He speaks more comforting words to them. Look at verse 22. He says, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we're going to lose the ship. And that's, that's what he's saying. No one's going to die. We will lose the ship. But we will not lose one of these 276 lives on board this ship. An angel of God came and said, You must stand before Caesar. And God has granted every life of those who sail with you. Is this not the sovereign hand of God at work, bringing to pass all things according to His predetermined plan? What about the other half of this? What about the human responsibility? What about the agency? Well, keep reading. After two weeks have passed, Luke tells us that the sailors are getting suspicious that they're drawing near to land. And so they start checking the depth of the water. And what do they find? It's starting to get shallow. It's midnight. They're still in the storm, but the water's getting shallow. And so they're worried about the ship smashing into rocks and then all of them Drowning in the dark, violent waters. And so what do they do? Some of the sailors tried to escape in one of the ship's longboats. This is the lifeboat, the, the dinghy, the, the smaller boat that would be used to ferry people and goods back and forth. You didn't run a ship this big up on the sand. So there was always this smaller boat. And these sailors were acting like they were going to address some anchors. But no, they were wanting to escape. They're thinking the wind is pushing us toward those rocks. Pretty soon everybody's going to be in the water. So we're getting out of here. What does Paul say? Verse 31. Unless these men... Stay in the ship. You cannot be saved. Paul is telling them, you get in that lifeboat, you die. I told you 
that no one on this ship will perish. My God has decreed it. You stay on this ship. Eventually you'll get wet, but you'll live. You get in that boat, and you die. There's a decision for them to make. A real choice between life and death. A choice between listening to the word of God or dismissing it. Earlier I mentioned King Ahab in 1 Kings 22. He had a similar choice before him, and he chose poorly. He didn't listen to the word of God. He thought he was smarter. He thought he knew better, and he died. But what about these sailors? What do they do? They cut the ropes and they let the boat go. They made a real choice. They exercised human freedom and agency and heeded the word of God. Let's look at the final section. The shipwreck. Day breaks. They see land before them that they don't recognize, but the sight of it had to be encouraging. They see a nice beach. And so they do everything they can to steer the ship towards this beach with the plan of just running it up on the sand. But before they could get there, they strike an underwater reef. And now the ship is stuck. It's slowly being broken apart as wave after wave smashes into it. And then this is when Julius kind of takes over and saves Paul and the other prisoners, like we mentioned before. And then Julius says, everyone who can swim, jump over and swim to shore. And if you can't swim, let's find something that floats. Let's find a board, a barrel, anything. And get you safely to shore. And guess what? No one died. The words of the angel of God were true. The ship was destroyed, but no one drowned. All 276 were brought safely to shore. Now go back to those questions I opened with. Is God sovereign? Yes. He preserved the lives of everyone on that ship. Even the prisoners, even those who couldn't swim. He he said something would happen and it happened. Don't forget the Lord Jesus had visited Paul in Jerusalem and said, You will testify of me in Rome. And he's making that happen. He's working through Roman soldiers. He was working through the elements. He's working through nature. It really is incredible, not now, but later. Open up Google Maps and look at the island of Crete and the island of Malta. That's that's where the Lord took them. They, They did nothing. They were completely aimless the entire time. His purpose and plan will be accomplished. And then the second question, is man responsible? Yes. They could have ignored Paul. They could have ignored him just as they'd done before when he said, guys, it's a little late in the year to be sailing. 
but they didn't ignore him. They chose to cut the boats free and let them go. They listened to Paul. And they sat and ate food on board the ship before everyone went for a swim. Every single one of them lived. Our God is a sovereign, predestining God, and we human beings are responsible for our actions. And our choices really matter. And as believers, we have to hold these two doctrines in the same hand and not throw overboard the one that we don't like. Because somehow in the mystery and the wisdom of God, they are both in harmony with one another. They're compatible. We've got another very brief example of this. I told you to mark Acts 2. Flip, flip back there. This is Peter's sermon on Pentecost. He's preaching in Jerusalem. And in verse 23 of Acts 2, I know it was a long, long time ago we were here. But in verse 23, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This isn't a Pauline thing. This isn't, this isn't just a, a hobby horse of Paul. Here we see Peter saying, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But you lawless men are the one who crucified him. And there we have it. This harmony of these two doctrines together. But here's where I'd like to end. I've gone longer today. It was a long passage. And if your mind has zoned out, I need you to come back for the end. Maybe you found all this interesting, my little mini lecture on systematic theology. Maybe you haven't. But here's one last thing to consider before we go to the supper and before you leave this place. I need you to see the Lord Jesus Christ as the ship of salvation. The ship that was wrecked and destroyed on the cross. He faced the storm, the violence of divine judgment, so that his people would be delivered safely from death to life. And I need you to hear God's words of promise. That there is only one way of salvation. This ship. Every other option will lead to death. He alone is the way and the truth and the life. And just like in Acts, our God has declared that not one of his own. Not one of those on board this ship will be lost. Jesus himself says in John 6, 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. He has promised to safely bring you home. 
through the waters of death to a land that's new, a land you might not recognize. But he will do it because he has granted that he will not lose one. And last, I need you to see yourself as one of those on board this blessed ship. We saw the sailors in this chapter throwing things overboard, tackle, cargo, even wheat at the end. Their livelihood, their control, they they abandon it all in an attempt to save their own lives. What is it for you that needs to be jettisoned? What's the sin that's clinging closely? That's hindering you from running the race before you? What are those idols? What are those good things that we've put in the place of God that need to be knocked down? These sailors did everything they could to save their lives. What must you jettison? And also, you remember, at one point in this story, they weren't trusting the word of God. And they thought they would be better off the ship to to escape in a smaller boat. But they cut the rope and let it go. What are you trusting in apart from Christ? What are those smaller, lesser boats that we're tempted to think can save us? What are those things that tempt us to abandon Christ? What are those things that seem like a smarter, more sensible way than God's way and what God has decreed? Brothers and sisters, cut those ropes. You are responsible for your actions. Your choices really matter. Cut those ropes. Jettison that cargo. And abandon yourself entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the plan that God predestined before the foundation of the world. Repent and believe that because the Son was wrecked. God the Father will bring you safely all the way home. Let's pray. Father God, may it be so. May we rightly see the Lord Jesus as our great sacrifice and atonement for sin. May we see God the Father in his faithfulness, in his promise, in his decree, which cannot be thwarted. And may we see ourselves as those on board this blessed ship. Help us more and more to put our trust in you. Send your spirit to dwell in us that he might strengthen us and guide us this day and all the days of our life until by your grace, You do bring us safely home through the waters of death and on a new shore. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.